Hi, this is Simon Dennis, BSC. We're here to talk about candy, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Simon Dennis, BSC, the director of photography of Candy on Hulu. Simon, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you. This is number four, right? I think it is, because American Crime Story... We had you on for Hollywood. We had you on for Ratchet. I think we right. might have done two American crime stories with you. So, I mean, right. this is, yeah. I mean, right. you are basically our returning champion now. It's <laughs> it's becoming the side. Do you I'm want a co-host? Is that what you're trying? Are you angling yeah, for a sure. co-host job? <laughs> there is tons to talk about. Candy is such a good show. I'm obsessed with it. I know you guys are too. Uh, but before we get there very quickly, are you subscribed to our YouTube channel? You need to be. That's what you need to be doing because guess what? If you're just listening to us now, you can see the interviews in their full glory, get to see our guests, look at all the nuances of their face and their facial expressions. You get it all right there on our YouTube page. So head over to YouTube, search Go Creative Show, hit subscribe, hit the notification bell so you never miss an episode and you will be so happy that you did. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So Simon, Candy, what a great Show. Now, here's, I tend to, this is probably like not the best thing to do when you're hosting a podcast, but I like to like not really research the project that much. I like to just mm. kind of watch it without knowing much of the backstory and just right. enjoy the series. And this was the case with Candy. I know nothing about the the case, the Candy Montgomery in the 1980s. Like, I know nothing about it. So right. I'm just now kind of experiencing this as I'm watching it. And I'd love just to kind of get a quick synopsis from you about what the show is about. Well, uh, the, the log line and the very simple story, because it is uh, ultimately the, the, um, the story is about uh, Candy Montgomery, who's a very kind of like church going, kind of pillar of the community, very bubbly, who uh, seemingly completely out of the blue, bludgeons her seemingly best friend from church, Betty Gore to death with an axe 42 times. On my travels and when I was in prep, I was talking to a few people and I would say, there was a good chunk of people that were like, oh, I was, I was around when I was, uh, you know, I was, I remember that happening. It's not a big event story. It's more like a, pu a community story. Yeah. And I, I also think the themes of this show was interesting to me because it is just, it is about a murder that happens in a very uh, quiet suburban part of Texas. But to me, it was also, it's also about community. And the sort of moral pressures of community, especially a church-going community, you know, and the fact that, you know, there's a lot of, it's, it's like a curtain-twitching kind of community. There's lots of gossiping. And so there was themes that were kind of bubbling up to me in the script about, you know, the notions of, which we, we can all relate to this, is like, you know, the feeling of not feeling lonely in your neighborhood, feeling maybe unloved, maybe trapped in your own family, mm. uh, which can then, you know, lead to adultery and then that in turn can lead in this case <laughs> to a very very gruesome murder mm. um so i feel like the community is is the backdrop to the community in the story is as important to the event itself and you know how people were driven to this kind of like you know this point you're no stranger to true stories i mean just american crime story alone you're retelling mm. true stories so and we may have even discussed this in previous episodes uh, on on American um, Crime Story. But when you're doing something like this, how do you balance that 
you know, it needs to be truthful. It needs to be real. It needs to be respectful of the people that were part of this. And also, cinematically, storytelling-wise, like, you need to keep it interesting at the same time. And there must be a balance there for you. And I'm curious what that is. Um, I mean, to me, whenever I start a project, you know, Versace was the same. Um, impeachment was the same. I always start from the inside out. I always start from, I don't start thinking, oh, what should this look like? What should this tonally feel like? What re movie reference can I maybe pull? Maybe even paintings. The lovely thing about true crime is, and if you have access to it, is the wealth of information and, and imagery that you can find either online or through the production. So on this show, we were given a lot of um, crime scene photographs, which were privately sent to Robin Veef, the showrunner and writer which is incredibly gruesome, but you feel like you have to be obliged to look at them. They're in incredibly disturbing. But once you get over that, and once you start working from the inside out of the actual event, and um, you know, if you, whatever you can find on, on the, the actual, the case itself, really helps to define the look of the show. And so that led me to, for instance, I was looking at like, Imagery from that period as well, like Polaroids. I was think I started to kind of form this thing in my head about Polaroids, crime scene photographs, saturated colors. You know, when I read Candy, I mean, Candy, the title itself is colored. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, that's just a happy accident. But like, you know, I started to see this show as being kind of in a yellow place. And then, yeah, through the crime scene photographs, I was getting more obsessed with the saturation of color, those crime scene photographs, reds. There was yellows, you know, blues, you know. And then I started to look at, like, William Eagleston's work uh, from that period. And, and I went a little bit deeper because I'm one of his biggest fans. I've always loved his stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with his, I mean, the little tricycle picture, the, the red ceiling with the light bulb. You know, His use of color is really engaging. Really I'm engaging. Yeah, I'm pulling up some just stills as we talk. And we'll put this in the show notes too so you yeah. guys can check it out. But if you aren't familiar with William Eggleston, you definitely should be because um, I think a lot of people, yourself included, are inspired by his work. Always. And um, on the, in this case, I was looking deeper into his process, his chemical process. He used a thing called uh, codochrome dye transfer, which effectively gave a – you know, some, some transfer systems, some ways that you process imagery can create more contrast. He created more saturation, particularly in one of the, you might see if you're looking at images, like the red channel, it seems to pop a lot. Mm. So I was at the early stages of prep, starting to kind of work out how I would achieve that on set. And as I did before in the last two shows, I was doing live color again. So on set, we had the Da Vinci Resolve and we were like, started to sort of pull through colors of, you know, uh, sort of colors out on set. And then in turn with this, uh, Robert Blackman, the cost amazing costume designer, and uh, Jamie McCall, the designer, they were all starting to work in these, they were starting to kind of develop the, the, the color palette that was also very close to William Eagleson's work. So, you know, there was burnt yellows, harvest golds, there was browns, avocado greens. And also, these are kind of late 70s color spectrum, color palettes, you know what I mean? Everyone remembers the avocado green bathrooms, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So, if I, so I hope I'm answering the question that you were initially asking because it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's about kind of… Um, you pulled the look from what you were getting from the story. 
Right. And the story was dictating in me. And obviously everyone's, every DP is subjective to what they see when they read the script. But I just saw yellow was the big sign, the color that I came up with in my head. And yeah, and just following through from the crime scenes, crime scene photographs. Yeah, I think the use of color in this is just spectacular. And it's like, do you ever kind of feel that there's a line there for you? Like when when is a color too much? Where is the line for you on this show? Uh, well, I, I feel like the line should be drawn before you walk on set. You know, I think the, the color palette, everything you choose, these are very important decisions, hugely important, because once they're baked in, yes, you can color correct them out later, but really everyone's on the same page. And me and Jamie and Robert, designer and costume designer, were very much on the same page. And they had tons and tons of mood boards of that period, including the costumes and the outfits and, you know, that, you know, the hair and makeup. So I feel like I drew the line before we walked in. And I, I feel like, yes, we were slightly riding the wave on the day. I mean, there was amazing moments where, you know, Betty, sorry, um, Candy, Jessica Bill would turn up in a bright red jumpsuit, you know. And I kind of knew that was gonna that was gonna sing a little bit in the scene, not overly like it's a, some kind of like a weird effect or a technicolor effect. I just felt like, along with I mean, and also also I'll get onto like the ultimate influence for this show, which kind of dictated also the kind of screen ratio worked out was uh, Napoleon Dynamite, really? which may sound very very like huh. strange. So once I was looking at the in, in prep, I was looking at the, the mood boards for the, and the concept art and, and for the sets and the costumes. Even though Napoleon Dynamite isn't set in this period, I think from memory it feels like it's set in that period. It feels like an 80s film, right? But actually it's set it in the 90s. It's set, I think, I think it's set close to when the movie was released. Anyway, I was just looking at that movie and I loved the sort of this cubist presentation of the imagery, very boxy. And it was going back to my Polaroid reference right at the start. Yes, yes. And and also, you know, it's it's a little weird in joke, but you know, Napoleon Dynamite's hair, man. That's Candy's hair. You know? <laughs> You're right. I'm looking um, and the glasses too. Look, I'm looking at the right glasses. Now. And and how like and how, you know, the thing about the danger of late 70s, 80s, obviously now culturally. It, no matter where you go with it, there's always a sense of parody. Yeah. You just can't well, get that, away That's it. something I want to talk about because when people think the 80s, they don't realize that they're really thinking about like 86 to 88, 89. Like <laughs> right. the real 80s, like the early 80s are yeah. 70s. Like that's yeah. what the 80s looks like is right. it looks like it's the 70s. So where you have something that takes place on, you know, in 1980, I think it might be a surprise to some people at just how 70s everybody looks and everything looks. Yeah. And it's 42 years ago when you think about it like <laughs> don't that. Don't say that. That, that is I scary. don't want to hear that anymore. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Culturally, people go, oh, the 80s, they think of Back to the Future or they think, you know what I mean? The mid to, the mid to late 80s. 80, 79, 80, because this story spans 79, uh, does a little bit of backtracking the story to a previous affair, but it, it, it kind of centers right around 80. But yeah, I think, you know, when we're on set, it was just a giggle to see, you know, fax machines and, you know, all those the kind of things that now are kind of technically can be in a museum. It's that old. Um, but I'm fascinated with that period, you know. Um, Why? I, I still remember, like, you know, my dad's, you know, my dad's jackets and suits and stuff from that period. And so, yeah, so I just going back to Napoleon Dynamite, that, that, that was 
for me, it, it's a very strange reference, but, you know, initially we were, I was sort of pitching a, a sort of a Texas Fargo kind of aesthetic because it's got a very funny bone, I think, yes. the story. It's a very dark story, but it's not done, other than the actual murder itself, it's not done in a very, everything is taken seriously, but it's also, there's a quirky side to it. Yes. And, and, and I also talk about the music as well, because we had music that was written prior to us shooting. We had a Betty theme and a Candy theme. Uh, Ariel Marks, brilliant composer, she did, which really helped us. I mean, this oh, yeah. this this was incredible. So she wrote two themes, which we took around with us, and sometimes I would listen to on set. And it, it has a sort of melancholy, quirky feel, the, the music, which thematically, I felt I knew I was on the right track with the quirkiness of Napoleon Dynamite, even though Napoleon Dynamite isn't a murder story set in White Texas, but you can maybe imagine that Napoleon lives down the street. That's how I sort of saw it. Anyway, yeah. that's... Well, that's uh, interesting. I would have never in a million years picked up on the Napoleon Dynamite, but now that you mention it and just you know scrolling through Google and looking at pictures... There is something to it. I mean, I think that you brought up the saturation quite a bit and mm. you kept it really bright. Um, not, not, not necessarily bright. That's the wrong word because it isn't bright, but you just, no, the saturation, it, it, like there's a lot of contrast, but the saturation's really deep and the colors come out really, um, you know, they're very intense in the show. How do you then, we, we're like, okay, it's in the eighties. We're going to lean into the seventies. We're going to lean into the color palette of the late seventies, early eighties. How do you actually find locations and cars and all of these things? I mean, this is 40 years ago. Mm, yeah. Finding that has got to be difficult. Um, first of all, where did you shoot? And talk to me about the locations and just how do you find this in real life? Well, we shot the show in Atlanta. Um, studio, the, all the studio work was done at Metro Studios, which is uh, south of the city. And then uh, we had a lot of, we had obviously key recurring location work. Um, which, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, it, we can, you can find, I think, locations and houses that are still kind of preserved in some way to that period. Cars, props, the, these are all very limited things. I mean, I, I still remember, I think from memory, the, the Candy Hero car, the station wagon, I could be wrong, but there was just one of them. Oh like, if, God. it's like, and, and you sort of take the risk as like, I've done this before on other shows where you, you literally have state that, you know, you have a discussion about uh, which car you would like. So you have a mood board and you, okay, we think it should be this one, the yellow station wagon, you know, it, the, sorry, like with Alan's little yellow Volkswagen. Yes. Do you remember yes. that? A very oh, yeah. quirky little car, uh, very unique. Uh, Alan's like six foot four. So like, he's like in it, like uh, the, the Incredibles, you know, do you remember yes. the Incredibles? But anyway, no, going back to that, that, that thing of um, resources and, and, and period resources and, and dressing, yeah, it's, it's very limited to kind of, you know, and, and you get down the period of like the late 80s and it's so much easier to find. Uh, one of the challenges actually was Candy's house and I kind of had to, basically it's a giant triangular fishbowl. This this whole house is it's it's I'd say six percent windows. I mean, so is and, it and is it a real house or is it? A that's a real house. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So th this is also connected to something that I'd love to talk about, which is limited daylight hours. Which was yes. so, we, so we had basically we were shot it in Texas. Sorry, shot it in Atlanta for the to fake. Sorry, we shot it in Atlanta during the fall to fake for Texas in the summer. 
Uh, and so along with all the period things we had to solve and um, either stuff that would be digitally replaced, taken out. I mean, a lot of stuff was taken, replaced or taken out or cleaned up. There's a lot of Stuff's invisible. V yeah, there's a lot of invisible VFX work in this. So we had, uh, you know, we had tree replacements pretty much behind every shot, uh, behind every character in, say, backyards and you know the streets and um, telegraph poles, anything that was remotely, you know, light switches. You did sort of think, take for granted. No, light switches are definitely period of, you know. Oh yeah. So, so there was a lot of cleanup work that's invisible, and the VFX company, God bless them, they did an amazing job, which you would never maybe guess. I mean, I, I, that was the challenge of, you know, Atlanta to Texas. I mean, <laughs> I didn't really notice anything. Nothing nothing was glaring out at me. I mean, sometimes you can tell a sky replacement or something, but little things yeah. like, you know, light switches and whatever, I didn't notice that. I wasn't paying right. particularly close attention to it. And I think it's a testament to just the show being so kind of realistic and you sort of just accept from the first 10 minutes the time frame that you're in and that these people live in these places and right. that's it. You, you, you don't expect things to be wrong um, and to be fixed. But so it sounds like there was quite a bit that went into making sure that this was as accurate as possible in the 80s. And there was a few different like categories of topics here. And I, I'd like to drill down on a couple of them. The mm. first being, let, let's talk for a moment about one of the biggest challenge that you, that challenges that you said you faced on Candy. And it's this idea of having limited daylight hours because a lot of your sets were real sets. It was on location for some of those. So talk mm. to me about that challenge and how you overcame it. Well, the, the challenge was also twofold because a lot of the storylines in these locations, we, we had children. There, there's, you know, there's two families in the show and the yeah. children are incredibly prevalent to the drive of the story and, and the motivation of the story. Um, so that, that in turn with uh, shooting in the fall of uh, Atlanta, so I would say we had from 7 a.m. till 5 p.m., Every day, wow. and that, that's just an automatic deadline. The, and, and along with that, children that had to come in, and we'd have to sort of work out very creatively how we'd shoot the family scenes uh, effectively. Uh, obviously, for the story, but also some of, from a coverage point of view, how we have because we had this was another three camera shoot for me. <clears throat> it started off as two, but because of the limited daylight hours and as things were moving forward, they added another camera for me. So I was constantly using cameras to pretty much either move ahead to another room or have one camera per room and let the action play out thematically like a play, which is ah. really, I think, great for actors if you can do that. That's an um, interesting thought. So it was essentially single cameras, but you had a single camera in multiple rooms. So they were able to yeah, move the action yeah. from room to room. So we either did that for anything that was challenging to get the maximum amount of daylight hours with the adults, but with the children, we tended to, and I, this is the challenge of not trying to make it feel like three cameras. I want this to feel like, I hope it feels like a one camera show. It certainly does. Is, is that the three cameras would be basically trained on the kids. So we would often work inside out. We knew that the kids would be fresh, so we'd start with close-ups. And then editorially, you know that the wide shots are going to get used less and less in any of these scenes, particularly because the heart and I know I knew the heart and soul of this story was going to be about the mid shot, the close up, you know. So, so yeah, so I would either train three cameras on the kids, um, and some of these scenes they were just a millimeter off, 
camera from each other, you know. We would, we would spend a little bit more time getting better framing and then just go for it than just to sort of scattershot it, you know. And this isn't a show that I was I wanted to shoot long lens and just pick things off, yeah. you know. Yeah. Going back to <clears throat> Napoleon Dynamite, the influence was, and I can talk about the ratio as well, was we ended up pitching to the studio. We, Me and Michael Uppendahl really wanted to shoot this 133, mm. which... I mean, famously, I think the lighthouse was the last sort of key project to do it. It's a yep. very that's a choice. Is, it's a big choice. It's a choice for sure. And and we really were passionate about that because because I we loved the kind of like cubist aspect to it, and we knew that the show wasn't necessarily going to have a great deal of camera movement. I think we were going to spend a lot more time with camera framing, and when we did do camera movement, it was always going to be linear to the to any movement. So if somebody walked from a space to space, we would track linear and maybe a little moves in here and there mm. but um we pitched one three through the studio they didn't go for it so we came back with a second pitch which was between academy and one three three which is one six six now one six six is uh it's it's it was it's like almost the original european um academy so a lot of european movies shot one six six and um so we had to go back to the studio and pit. This is the f funny story. We had to go back to the studio and pit. So I did a ton of research and I was being very kind of like, oh, yeah, I found a great example. Um, Virgin Suicides, that really arty movie. Yeah. Uh, beautifully shot. And Mike was like, I think we need to go to them with like something that's bankable, you know, something that has made some money. And this is another really bizarre reference. But he came back to me the day later. He says, I've been down the rabbit hole and I've come back out. And Toy Story shot on 166. No way. Uh, well, not shot. Obviously, it was animated 166. And I thought to myself, are you crazy? And he's like, no, no, trust me. So we, we sent the, the pitch with it, and they just looked at Toy Story. They looked at the box office, and they were like, yeah, shoot your show 166. That's crazy. As we're talking, <laughs> I found this link, and I'll put it in the show notes. Just a handful of films, you know, famous films shot in 166. I'm seeing here Clockwork Orange, Rear Window yes. Pie. Like, Yes, that's most, that most is so funny. Well, that that was also my private little reference. Was all, most of Kubrick's movies were one six six. So, uh, well, what but, does it uh, do? I guess, like, what what is the feeling well, you get from one six six? Because it, you don't you don't notice it as much. A one three three, you're gonna notice. I mean, you yeah. watch the lighthouse and you're like, okay, this is. I mean, I I notice this. Um, but the one six six, you don't. I, it, what, it what is it about it? Well, it was enough for us to make much more of a postcard image, like a Polaroid postcard image, than obviously Pol Polaroid is 4.3 slash 1.3.3. But to me, I was trying to get as much, um, like I say, cubist element to the, mm. to the image. Um, it was about as boxy as you could go <laughs> before the, before go. the um, yeah. studio strange, said no. <laughs> strangely, but strangely, the other day I was looking at a project and I looked it up and, and it has an aspect ratio of 1.55. So there's there's still very, you know, I guess I get my think my thinking is, <clears throat> I think you can actually create any ratio you like. You know, they can mask for it because it's going to be sure. presented on your, you know, your big home screen TV anyway. Um, but the argument is strange because you know, yes, there's one three three, there's bars left and right, but then it's completely okay to have black bars, top and bottom. Yep. So I, I don't find the argument always that kind of like it doesn't hold up or doesn't hold water, but I understand it is a choice. It certainly is. And I think actually on hindsight, maybe 133 might have been a bit too extreme.
Well, I think what 133 uh-huh. would have done is I think it may have pushed it more into um, like you might be leaning too far into the 80s at that point. I, yeah. I almost feel like it'll be because then it's like the like first everything. Right. It yeah. might feel like you're trying to push a little bit hard. I mean, I think the choice to just go a little bit wider was really good. And mm. something I'm curious about with that boxiness is does it like something that you do really, really well in all of your other work is wide shots. Like I think you're you're really to me one of the masters of the wide shots. I, I, you're just able to capture architecture in a really unique way and it seems like you have such a keen eye for what moments are going to be benefited by these big grand wide shots. And you do it in candy as well. Um I'd love to talk to you about your strategy for the wide shot, especially now knowing that you shot purposefully as boxy as you could with mm. the the 166. Um, talk to me about your strategy for wide shots. When you use them, why you use them, and what you look for in what's going to create a good-looking wide shot in your eyes. Well, I think it's, I, I would probably reference community. So community was a thing. So, you know, the church location, the courtroom, um, the houses. I always try to kind of almost like a, one of the, one of the uh, research uh work that one of the directors Tara did was pulling out some cultural references of that period and some of them were more like snapshots mm. of that period. So you could get a snapshot of a family in front of their house and, and it was incredibly straight straight on, like dead on. Um th- this this show, you know, past shows, you know, Ryan shows, we tended to kind of move lower or higher on on, on the eyeline mm-hmm. or sometimes get up into a corner. This one, I felt like it should almost sit at eye level and, and almost be as dead on as you can to be closer to what you'd relate to being of that period and, and also the characters. I didn't feel like any of these wide shots, although they are incredibly tableau, as it were, that I didn't feel like they needed to be warped left or right, up and down. I felt like as much, you know, uh, as close to the storyline, eyeline as possible, if yeah. that makes sense. It um, does. And I'm curious, what like what is it that you look for in a successful wide shot? Because they're <laughs> used sparingly. It, well, and it's, and it's <laughs> yeah. also, it, but it's like, I think a lot of people will naturally say, okay, I'm establishing a scene. I'm going to do a big wide shot so that we know where we are. And then mm. we'll get in closer to the talent eventually to the point where you're in close-ups and you know, you know, you widen back out. I don't think your work doesn't follow that. And yeah, there's editorial decisions that go into how it eventually lays out. But I think that there are some interesting decisions that you make of when to bring in a wide shot. It seems like you're always right. accentuating architecture more so than just showing us where we are. Yeah. An interesting, going back to the ratio as well, because this is an intended, these are incredibly important decisions that you have to work in tandem with everyone. So if you're working widescreen, your sets go like that. They don't go like that. So, and your location choices go like that. You're talking more about vistas. This one, it was the opposite. So yeah. me and Jamie, the production design, were being very cautious and the location manager about choices that would fit more evenly and balanced into a frame like 166. So there was much, I think this show was more about sky and height than scale. And, and this, this impacts also how you go about building the ratio scale of a set. So 
if your decisions earlier on are that's shoot there's this ratio production designers go oh maybe i should add another you know foot on the height of these walls or maybe everything can be compressed like this um because once you've built those sets your, your wide shots have to i mean you're working at a clip most of the time so your your decisions have to be quite instinctual sometimes so when you go back out to the wide shot which in this case was tended to be the last thing we would do uh, is we would spend a bit more time um, framing it up, but also like building it up, like you know, like placements of uh, because this is a crime, this is a um, investigation story, and there are clues. And you know, for instance, Betty's house, there's the sewing machine. So in certain shots, we would place the sewing machine prevalently in the frame when other action's going on, and you're constantly trying to draw the axis of any shot around clues. Or, or um, the, what was interesting was, in fact, this is an interesting one with the wides. When the, when the police and the lawyers go to the house to walk the plot of what they thought had happened, we tried to shoot it in exactly the same coverage of when Betty comes in and ultimately the murder happens. Mm. So when Betty comes in, it's a wide and it holds very loose. She comes in, they go in, they go out, they go through. And we basically did exactly the same shot when the police got there, you know, many weeks later to walk it through. So the wide shots were really integral, not just architecturally to any part of the story, they're integral to the structure of the crime, you know? Yep. So it's like... Um, what was the other one example? Oh, yeah, the backyard. We did exactly the same. Like, we had Betty when she's just trying to throw the ball for the dogs and they're not running and she's got this miserable life. Yeah. We then basically go back and we've got exactly the same shot of the guys coming out and talking about the crime. And I, and I, it's almost like the cameras had never left. Yeah. You know? It's like that. It was, it was a... And to me, that's a really fascinating thing about how you analyse what wide shots are because wide shots are... You know, this famous story about the Godfather with the top shot where he gets killed by, you know, the fruit store and and um, uh, Gordon Willis, one of my heroes, was like, well, who's that point of view? And, you know, Coppola says, that's God, you know. So, you, so it's like, you know, wide shots do take a point of view and they can. This, this one in particular made more of a point of view of signposting a, a story and making it a little bit clearer for the audience. Talk to me about the camera package and lenses that you paired with it for camera. Yeah. So I I kind of basically went back on the road with exactly the same package as Impeachment. So we had Sony Venice and the Panaspeeds, except this time around, I I was sort of thinking I didn't really want to do a filtration effect. I felt like that was going to be a too much of a cheesy parody of that. It, it would have been too easy mm. to do filtration for the 80s. Yep. And I, so I felt like we needed something that was more bedded into the image. So Dan Saki, the wizard of lenses at Panavision, I went to him and I said, can I, can I get like a vinyl image, like an analog vinyl, or like an old record feel? And Dan's amazing. Uh, like a vinyl like just, image? Just like it's, it's, it's been sandpapered, you know? Okay. It's just, you know, like, a, I mean, my, my analogy was an old record rather than a CD. 
Yep. Yep. Okay. And so Dan and Panavision, in my absence, actually, because I was already in Atlanta and the lenses needed to be tested in-house there in LA. So they actually did in-house tests for me, which was phenomenal. And uh, what they did was he detuned them. Now, I, I can't tell you what he did because it's like he will never tell you his Coca-Cola secret <laughs> yeah, exactly. formula. Because what he, what he does is really fascinating. What he does is he retunes them as soon as he gets them back and he destroys, you know, there's no, there's no record. That is so funny. So wait, you so, don't even know? Or does he, does he? I don't even know. All wow. I know is, I, all I know is I talk about percentages. So he did me a test. He sent it to me and I said, can you come back 5%? He did that. And so what he did was he detuned it. So it, uh, it, it sort of, lim it, it, it had a limitation because I couldn't, because of the, 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 the nature of shooting, say, wide open, which I knew this show wasn't going to be. When you go wide open, you're effectively letting so much light in that light was almost leaking into the highlights too much. It was blooming. Sure, and it had sure. a weird, like, ghosting effect. So that meant we were shooting minimum of T2, which is fine for me. But what it made... It's still pretty it, wide. It's still pretty it's wide. A, when, yeah, yeah. But, but it's still, you know, for portrait work and also close-ups of candy and, you know, that notion of feeling trapped and all that sure, kind of stuff. Sure, sure. But um, going back, to, yeah, so what he did was he detuned it. So it had this, I just can't explain it, right? I mean, if you see the show, you may be conscious of how it feels like it's just got a, like a soft, softer, more, yeah, vinyl feel, I think, yeah. you know, and, and the fact I didn't filtrate, it took took the detail out. out. It, it sort of, like I said, it sandpapered it down a little bit. So the detail was a little bit off. Um I guess it's the same th theory of like back focus is off a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's sort of just sort of, which is again something that you tend to not not try and do these days. You tend to try and get as much detail into the image. But because we were shooting large format six K, I was totally happy with like, you know that. And the first day of shooting was always a little bit nervous for me. And we got the first shot lined up, and I was like, oh god, this is lovely. Thank thank you, Dan. You know, so that that was so the cap the camera package was you know three we ended up like I said with three eventual cameras, a four times steady cam body, and um, yeah the panel speeds with P P seventy zooms, which was as close as we can get to the panel speeds. All right, yeah, I mean that sounds like a that sounds like a good package. I'd love to know what the detuning is. Although at the same time, it's like no. even if I knew, it's not like I could no. do it myself. So no. <laughs> I guess I guess I would know. So did you not use any filtration at all in the lens? No. You kept it totally no. clean. Yeah. And 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 for a show that has two lead actresses that you have to, you know, on a DP to actor relationship, you have to look after them. But the detuning actually was, I felt, even better than filtration because it smoothed out. Mm. like um, the, the skin tones. So if you are watching the show and you don't think it's, you think it's working, then it's, it's good for me. I mean, I, yeah, I, I um, no filtration, which was my first, you know, you gotta, you gotta push yourself a little bit, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the show, I mean, it looks great. And I personally like that you guys didn't lean so far into the eighties that you almost made it a, you know, that you would have made it a parody of itself in a way. I don't know. I just feel like, you don't yeah. see that oftentimes. Like a, a lot of times you think, okay, there's going to be set in this certain time period and we're going to do everything we can to support that time down to getting period lights and, you know, find even like we just interviewed um, 
the DP from Winning Time, the LA Lakers, yeah. show, which is yeah. awesome. And Amazing. I'm obsessed with that show. Now that, talk about polar opposites. They lean so far into the time period, they're actually using the old video cameras from, right. from the time. So, I mean, there's obviously a way to do it masterfully either way, but I kind of liked, and I think maybe it's because I was born in 1980 and I have you know, memories of being a young child in the eighties, mm. my memories aren't, aren't foggy. Like, you know what I mean? I don't look back at the eighties as this, you know, ancient time period. So when I see it nah. kind of cleaner, it sort of resonates with me. Um, I thought it was an yeah. interesting choice. Have you played yeah. with Venice too, by the way? That's hopefully next up for me. Yeah. I'm off on another project soon. So that I'm hearing amazing things, you know, another stop of latitude I'm hearing. Um, it just gets better and better that camera. Can't yeah. wait. Yeah. We're going to do an episode on it with Pete Consul, who shot the um, the demo video, that Western. Um, right. So he's going to come on and talk about it. I think his director's coming on too. So there'll be lots of Venice 2 talk on Go Creative Show, but curious if you got your hands on it yet. Yeah, soon, soon. It's coming. <laughs> it's, it's coming. coming. <laughs> Let's talk about lighting on Candy. Now, you mm. know, you are, like we mentioned, you're creating the late 70s, early 80s. Um, what was your lighting package to help support kind of the look of that time period? Um, well, I mean, for the soundstage work, we went, we started actually with the proposal of, of tungsten work because tungsten work can give more of a organic, slightly dirtier feel, which mm. I think would have been close to the period. Just because now we live in an LED world and practicalities and, and the fact that you have day scenes and night scenes and dust scenes and all that kind of stuff. It just wasn't going to be practical. So we basically went ahead and lit all the soundstage work with, with um, LEDs. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that we didn't um, be try to be faithful to try and keep in that period a little bit more analog. You know, we didn't want it to feel like any of the light sources were affecting or feeling modern, you know, because the, the LED lights, I mean, we, we occasionally use strip lights in scenes. I mean, the, the crazy... Uh, this, the um, the roller skating scene, which is this very garish yeah, green, which was my Robbie Muller moment. I just I just walked in and I was like, I think I think this should be Robbie Muller. And the director was like, great. Um, but again, it was, you know, me with color. I just love color theory. And I just thought I just saw this image as saturated green because it was another part of the color spectrum that we'd not really used. But um yeah, the thing about this show was, I mean, generally, even though we had an LED camera package, uh, sorry, lighting package, is my my own personal approach, I guess it came again from Napoleon Dynamite and things like that, is for the first time, I didn't really want to make it ever feel lit, lit in any way. I just felt like it needed to be, I mean, there's definitely exceptions with, um, I sort of binded together Betty and Candy with uh, sodium vapor light. I don't know if you're sort of conscious of it, but through the show, there's this very harsh style. It's, it's, I felt like it needed to be stylized. Kind of, it's sort of like a blood orange, mm -hmm. like uh, sodium vapor that comes into the utility room and through the bedrooms at night. And there's a scene where uh, Alan and Betty kind of are in bed together and it's 100% lit either from the bathroom all through what is fictionally the street light from outside, which has this kind of garish, kind of red, yellow feel. And it then cuts to Candy at this dive bar um, that's bathed in the same color. And mm. it's like a disco scene where she's dancing. Yeah. 
uh, and, and and then there's this recurring locations in the utility room, which is the massively important location where the murder happened, which actually is an incredibly small space, but we try to be faithful. But anyway, there was constantly moments where I was trying to sort of connect their two worlds through one color. And the rest of the colors would be just playing out naturally to the story. Um, but yeah, I... I was picking up on the sodium vapor because okay, I, good, I mean, I good. remember, like, I, I guess there's still some areas with sodium vapor color in exterior, like streetlights and stuff. But for the most part, things are LED, a lot brighter, a lot whiter um, outside now. But back in that time, and I remember... Um, that was the color that you got. Like when you're yeah. when your blinds were open and you live near a streetlight, that's what was streaming through your house at night. Yeah, good. Well, thank you for saying that. That was my, I was sort of pinning on that and I was, um, yeah, and like I said, I was using it as hopefully a tool, albeit, I know it's a very aggressive uh, color, but I, I just wanted to make it more of a, a sort of a bind between the characters yeah, and I think I think that was beautifully done. I mean, I just I love all the colors. It really draws me in. So it it always works for me. Yeah. Um, the acting in this show is so good. I mean, your whole cast was fantastic. But I'd love to talk to you about the Justin Timberlake episodes because you know you have you have Justin Timberlake and Jessica yeah. Biel together on camera. I mean, that must have been kind of an interesting dynamic to see. What was it like working with both both Justin Timberlake and Jessica Biel on Candy? Yeah. Well. Uh, the actual announcement of Justin's involvement was actually about halfway through the shoot. And, um, oh, you didn't even know. Well, that, I think that was the cool thing. Um, they said, uh, we still casting, uh, Duffy, you know, the, the, the sheriff, as it were, the, the, who invades, who, who is a real character actually. And he had this bizarre, um, there was a history with him, right? Something about him. He used to be, he used to work in a circus as a clown. He had these multiple, um, jobs that he went through before. Duffy, the become. real, the real. Yeah, oh, yeah. No way. Um, uh, you, if you notice, when he takes his um, sheriff's outfit out of his closet, there's a rack, and on it is uh, is a clown outfit. <laughs> and awesome. again, it's like a little uh, Easter egg, I guess. But yeah, what was really interesting was, or oh, a, or, you know, if anyone knows anything, that you know, they know that Justin and, and Jessica are married. They yeah. have, they're very happily married. I didn't know this, but apparently Justin was in town the whole time when she was shooting Atlanta. So obviously, you know, a family man now. And and when they announced it, I was like, oh, genius. You know, he's playing the person that's investigating his own wife. You know, I just think that's amazing. But also, I don't know if you know this. So Melanie, who plays Betty, um, his her husband plays the other cop. No way. Yeah, I did. So not you have two sets of uh, <laughs> two sets of marriages that were cast into the story. Um, yeah, Jason Ritter, that was it. John Ritter's son. No way! I didn't realize they were married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I didn't either. Wild. But yeah, so I guess I'm not up on all of my Hollywood juicy gossip. But that's well, still. I know. I had to look it up, but um, it was interesting. It, it, it obviously wouldn't help to like guide me in any way but i did find it incredibly there's a lot of humor to those decisions you know i think it was a great choice were the dynamics uh, different on set i mean people are always different around their spouses it just is the way that it is i mean 
you know, you have yeah, like you I have mean, the that, way you are by yourself with your friends. You have the way you are at work, and then you have like kind of your relationship mode. And there's there's differences in personalities. Right? Did that happen at all? Did you feel that? No, it was a very chilled set. I mean, Justin's a super guy, great guy. There was no entourage. There was no. There wasn't even an assistant, as far as I could see. He, in fact, I was remember there was one day where um, he's sort of interviewing Alan Gore. Um, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah, Alan Gore. And um, we, they call cut, and he goes in and resets Pablo, the actors, Pablo playing Alan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his props. Pablo I mean, Shriver, right? Pablo Shriver, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, who, so it just shows, like, you know, to Justin's a great down to earth, hard working guy. He was great. And, like, he really got into the character. You know, it was, there's a sort of gruffness to him. I can always, when I looked at him, he looked like almost a character out of the Wild West, you know? He had this sort of like, this six o'clock, you know, nine o'clock shadow, and he had this little paunch that he had made. Uh, but the other interesting thing about saying about that period and the acting is one of the, it, again, this could be a turnoff, but one of the early pitches that is described in the the description of the community is the word mundane. Mm. Uh, and, and, and how the mundane becomes the extraordinary in this case, because it's about a small church community. Nothing happens. And then this happens. I mean, I could go off on a long story, but there was a murder in my hometown when I was a kid. Oh my God. It was one murder and uh, we could not believe it. I mean, obviously everything was gut gossipy. But anyway, what I was getting at was when I was watching like Pablo working, he had this kind of like walk that had like this kind of like shuffle. It was kind of like odd. And he's a very sort of uncomfortable character. And there's a lot of it about like, he doesn't have twitches, but he's sort of, you know, he's kind of, bookish you know yeah. and, yep. and the, the, i think they really found a lot of joy the actors i could see playing what well, a real characters you know some of them i mean candy strangely is still alive she's she's under a new name pseudonym and she's i believe in therapy in therapy or something wow. not in therapy in counseling she's a counselor so oh. she's out there. She's still alive. She's counseling. <laughs> she could be listening to this podcast. All right. <laughs> Watch it <your> back. <laughs> but um, no, I, I find it, I think the actors really, really like embraced the, these characters that are still, that were very much drawn on, you know, and again, like me, they were drawing on the, the resources of the, the true, you know, story and the characters. And they were really, really loving their own personal outfits and costumes and how, you know, I think it was it Pat, Tim, the Pat who plays Pat, he's got this lovely uh, sky blue jumpsuit in one scene. He took it home. Like, no. he, like yeah, on rap, he took it home. <laughs> That's so funny. So that was the love for these characters and obviously this period, you know, the bygone period. But yeah, it, it, I, I just think they did an amazing job of the acting because it was nicely balanced. And again, it has a slightly... Um, quirky is the perfect word. Quirky, it's not, yeah. It's not funny, but it's it's, it's quirky and yeah. I, 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 what's the? So I'm a big fan of Mike Lee. Well, I, I haven't watched his movies in a long time, but I, I remember going to films, going and loving Mike Lee's work. Um, and he he his characters were like larger than life, hmm. and, and a little bit more kind of like colorful. And I think if you're going to tell a story about, you know, anything in this kind of community if each character has almost like a, its own color, its own flavor, and yep. it's slightly heightened and it's, you know, and you've got, you've got the amazing costumes and, and these 
amazing, you know, outfits and what have you. Uh, I, I could just imagine. They just now, love I'm, it. A, I'm a they horrible just love actor. It. They just, they, I, I, yeah. I, I'm an awful actor and I, I overact everything. So to me, I'm thinking I have a ridiculous wig on, a mustache, a crazy outfit. I, it's gonna, it's yeah. going to be just, but like, I won't be able to tame it if I was, I know. If I was on the show. But, but you wouldn't believe how much excitement there was on set about how they'd love to get their wigs on and their, 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 their you know, their suits and jumpsuits and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and how it almost, be, you know, like, I mean, many actors will tell you, like, that uh, many actors will tell you that they always start with the outfit or or some prop in their pocket, mm. something that gives them their identity. You know, um, you know, Gary Oldman talks. I love this story about how he personally went out and got Smiley's glasses from Tinker Taylor. Like he picked mm. them out, and supposedly it was just one pair of glasses. It just had one copy, it but it was like. It. It was his character. And so when Candy puts on those amazing glasses and the wig goes on, it's just fun and games, you know. (laughs) Obviously, you have to play serious, but that's why it was a very, it was a very tough, I mean, it was a tough shoot. We had like nine to 10 days per episode. Wow. Which is, I mean, you can imagine, tough. So the fact that everyone was loving the period and coming to work every day and it was just fun in that way, it kind of, it made everything okay. And the fact that we only had like, yeah, like 10 hours of daylight, but, God, um, yeah, those it, are uphill it makes, battles. It makes, it makes you, you know, thicker and you, know, you you get more and more confident after each, you know, show by having these, what you think are compromises and restrictions. I always feed off restrictions because when you're pushing a corner, you think more clearly about what I think you need to do. Mm. And my favorite episode actually is uh, episode three because they brought in Ben Seminoff. So Ben's a all-round great guy, and he he used to be a camera operator on Ozark and shows like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you know, as you know, Ozark incredibly disciplined show. Oh, yeah. You know, incredible. I mean, lays you know, scalpel sharp, like framing. Uh, and when I went with Ben, he he said to me very interestingly, he said, "I'd sooner spend two thirds more time getting two thirds less coverage. Like I'd sooner like do, I would talk about it and work. Like he would spend." a long time working on just one camera frame to the story rather than saying, well, I'm going to do seven or eight shots in this and kind of water it down. So he really went for it. I don't know if that comes across in the episode. I've watched it. It doesn't, it still to me feels like it's in the one camera kind of category. Yeah. But um, yeah. that, that was a very rewarding um, episode because, you know, he, he respects what a DP, because he's been operator. So he, 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 I just let him, work with the art department, work with props, work with everyone, the camera operators, to get that frame just so, you know. And and that was more important than saying, let's get another four or five shots. Yep. Let's talk about, um, as we wrap up our conversation, let's talk about the courtroom scenes in uh, Yeah. Um, it seems like there were some challenges, um, you know, structurally figuring out the character perspective. There's a lot going on in these courtroom scenes. Um, break it down for us. Well, if anyone has ever done courtroom scenes, um, they're incredibly difficult because they have so many tropes. Uh, but if you can come again, like I do from the inside out, if you can come from perspectives you can pretty much filter down where you're going to place the camera because there's so many different ways you can do it. There's so many different, but ultimately when you have, say, Pablo on, or Alan Gortz on the stand, I knew it was going to be from the prosecution's point of view, 
largely, although, you know, because basically we would either go from left to right, right to left, so prosecution or defense. And then when we came to people like Candy, I wanted to put the camera right in the middle. Like, I, I felt like, yes, it needed to kind of like cut in eventually to, because these are long scenes. Yeah. Eventually they need, the editor needs that perspective coverage. So in a weird way, we worked off this center to triangular structure. So it was either center or like, for instance, in one scene, we were over the left shoulder of the judge and then the right shoulder to the prosecution and defense. So it's it's still sitting on the line and it gives the editor a choice of cutting to classically the question, you know, and the answer, you know, the prosecution and the defense. So that that... So the perspective you're talking about is the perspective of like how that moment would be viewed in the room. So like, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. But but I felt like Candy's story needed to sit almost down the middle because eventually we do get to Candy's testimonial, you know, a big like breakdown of what actually happened. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was a choice creatively that we suddenly cut to this, the void of the, 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 the courtroom space and it's just her. There's no one in the room. Um. But, yeah, they, they are challenging. I mean, the, the, the other challenge of this so is from the set point of view, we had, a, we had a, a bunch of sets going into that soundstage, and this was on the top right corner of the soundstage. And Jamie, the designer, bless her, she, um, we had a, another set which dictated where the courtroom set was going to be, which is right in the corner. And eventually that set that dictated that went away, the other set. So it could have been further away from what we call the fire lane. So if you've been on a soundstage, the fire lane is, it's like the edge of the pitch. Yep, you, know? yep. you, you, you can put lights beyond it, but they have to be strung up over. That's why fire lane's there for safety. So believe it or not, the, 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 the wall of windows, I would say is probably mm, 10 feet to the wall. Which, wow. Which you can imagine created us a bit of a challenge in, well, I knew, because I the thing about the courtroom thing is thematically, I could have just gone with a very soft top light, make a, a soft, even thing. But because of the Texas thing, I kind of like the, I saw it in my head as being much more about scraping sunlight coming in. Um, so we made that decision and we kind of got a rig up there and it just fitted in, you know, mm-hmm. by a millimeter. And, 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 and it's a challenge because any light, <clears throat> Any sunlight you have to put into a, into a location, you try to get as further away from possible so the sunlight metering is as even as you can. You basically want the, win- the, the, wa- the, the window light and the wall light opposite to almost be the like same exposure. Yeah. Because then it doesn't look natural. It, doesn't, yeah, it just exactly. looks lit. There's something about it. But, yeah, that, that was the other thing. And, and we, we brought in crane work for it. You know, the, uh, one of my favorite shots, actually, is a shot that, scrapes the top of the ceiling with the fans going and it kind of moves out and down and over and it's it's actually i think that's the start of candy's testimony uh, you know being on the stand yeah yeah um and those those sort of shots again you know going back to like my theory about giving a shot a sort of a purpose not just being wide because wide is just wide it to me that felt like showing as much making candy feel as small as you can kind of go on the stand. Um, and then I don't, I mean, we went through this actually with impeachment with, you had with a Monica. Monica. Yeah. We, well, yeah. I mean, we had three days. I mean, I think, yeah, that's, that was a great, you know, we were, I was back in the same environment and I tell you as, as 
you can have as much sleep as you want and focus, but when you get onto the set, I think three or four shots in, you're like, well, we're going to come back to the same shot now. And the, th the other thing about it is you can't sort of almost block shoot out like one bit. You've got to almost give the actors the, the ability to go from top to tail and the whole thing. You can't yeah. sort of say, um, let's put this shot in and then let's put the other act in and we'll do three people on the stand in a row. That, like, yeah, yeah. You just, you, so what it does is it creates immense challenges that you have to work from coverage inside out. So you have to start with all the drama and then work out and out and out to the wide. And then ev eventually, obviously, the nice little inserts of jury members, people nodding, people listening. And then beyond that, you know, Sherry, the character Sherry was a really integral part because she was constantly a eyeline reference to Candy. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, me and Mike, the up and down the director, the interesting thing is that, that you can... I don't know whether this is law per se, it's creative license, but he was like, do you think Candy should be between the defense, you know, between the men, or should she be on the outside because they want to get a cleaner eyeline to the audience, as it were, in the room, and the audience would get a cleaner eyeline. And I was like, I don't know, I kind of saw her as being like between the men. And the, the other thing about this era, you know, 1980s, it's a housewife era, you know, sure, sure. It, it, and the, 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 the sort of themes, going off at a tangent from um, courtroom, but the themes were interesting because Betty, unlike Candy, is a very, in, she's, she's all her own worst enemy. She's like, so she's very insular. She, you know, seemingly hates children, you know, <laughs> even yeah. though she tries to adopt one. Yes. Um, she never seems happy. Um, She's a complete polar opposite to Candy. And this is what was fascinating in the whole arc of the real story and what was in favor of Candy, believe it or not, is people just couldn't believe that if Candy did do this, that, well, hey, why, she's such a bubbly, cake-baking kind of like housewife. You know, how could she do this? Whereas Betty didn't really socialize. She was a bit of an anomaly on, you know, in the community. Not many people liked her, you know? I'm just going off like some of it, what I've read of the thing, but the actual scripts, the way they're presented. Oh, yeah, the, of course. The justification for somebody to snap. And then beyond that, of course, there's Freudian stuff with, we did we did shoot an whole entire sequence, which didn't make it in the cut. There's a couple of shots, but there, there's a whole flashback to France when Candy was a kid and how her mother, she got cut by some glass and she took, she was taken to this um, hospital and her she was like crying and crying. Her mum just told her to Shh, be quiet, you know. And that's, you may have noticed, that's a trigger point in the murder. So Betty tells her to be quiet. And that just like, she, yep. Candy just sees red, you know. This is yep. what I'm reading and what happened. It's, it's really fascinating what actually happened between those two women privately in that back utility room. It's just beyond comprehension, you know, how... How, how, and that they, we went through this when we we're preparing to actually shoot it, is that it was incredibly messy. Mm. We, you know, we started to, my director was working very closely with the stunt coordinator. And what we wanted to make sure was whatever happens in that sequence didn't feel in any way stunty or staged or, you know, uh, we did use doubles, but they rarely. They do cut some a couple times, but it's mostly the real actors. And 
you know, a lot of hair pulling, a lot of like scrappiness, trying to get mm. out, blocking. I just, I just, I just find that. And now, when you go back to what you think it once been like, and the fact that she she acted there forty two times. I mean, it's just like it's like those stories you hear about when you know, uh, say, like a car falls on a kid, and the mother has the strength to pick a car up. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what that's called, but. You know what I mean? Where you, yeah. you find inner strength that you know ne- you never knew you could have. Yeah, it's I, it's, I just, it's just it's crazy. an insane story and fascinating. And I think you guys did a great job of being respectful to the events that happened, but also making it enjoyable to watch and bringing in all the you know all the things you expect from a Simon Dennis project. That's for sure. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, Simon, Simon, and a lot of very talented people. Of I would course, say. yeah, of course. yeah. I mean, big shout out to everyone. Really, that it was such a great, great production. It's a fantastic show. It's only a few episodes, guys. So check it out. It's not a giant investment of like multiple seasons. I think it's five episodes, and uh, it, it just. It should not be missed. It's called Candy. It's on Hulu. It's available now. I think the last episode just aired this week. So mm-hmm. we're, um, we're, it's all there for you guys to check out on Hulu. And Simon, I mean, fifth time's a charm. You got to come back now. <laughs> well, hopefully. I'm, I'm just off to do uh, a show in Toronto called Fellow Travelers, which is uh, another fascinating one. It's not a true story, but it sort of rests heavily on true a true backdrop. It's a uh, McCarthy era in the 1950s, McCarthy witch hunt, a cross cut between that and the AIDS pandemic in 86. So it's the writer of Philadelphia, which so you can imagine it's, it's well-written, well-crafted, yeah. um, great characters. So ah, that sounds so, awesome. So I'd love to come back. Please do. We'd love to have you. Simon Dennis, BSC, Director of Photography of Candy on Hulu. All episodes are available now, so check them out. Simon, thanks for being on Go Creative Show. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. All right. I want to thank Simon Dennis, the director of photography for Candy on Hulu for coming back on the show. He's been on a lot and I love talking to him and he has such good projects. So if you haven't heard all the episodes with Simon, head over to gocreativeshow.com. Type in Simon Dennis. You'll see all of his episodes there. The guy is just fantastic. A masterful cinematographer and director of photography and his projects are just so, so good. So check them out. I want to encourage you, of course, to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as YouTube, where we put all of our episodes um, right there on YouTube. So you get to see our guests, you get to hear our guests, you get to see the conversation between us. There's uh, oftentimes we have show shorts that are like little clips of each episode where we uh, pair it with some B-roll and behind the scenes photos. So there's a lot going on there over at Go Creative Show's YouTube page. So please do check it out. Of course, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ben Consoli, at Ben Consoli. Of course, I want to thank Connor Crosby, our producer. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And Dave Siegel from Siegel Sound, who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. And of course, I want to thank you all for joining us today. And we'll see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>